A warm welcome to one and all listening today. We are glad to be back with another episode of Rewind, the official podcast of the History Society of St Stephen's College. The podcast aims to make history and its various aspects more accessible and interactive and to facilitate simplified conversations between students and historians, writers, academicians and curators. Today, my friend Anushka and I Debanjan have the honor of interviewing Dr. Durba Mitra. Dr. Durba Mitra is an assistant professor of women, gender and sexuality and the Carol K. Fozheimer assistant professor at the Radcliffe Institute of Harvard University. Dr. Mitra works at the intersection of feminist and queer studies. Her research and teaching focus on the history of sexuality, the history of science and epistemology and gender and feminist thought in South Asia and the colonial and the post-colonial world. She is a recipient of the 2019 Roslyn Ab- Abramson Award for Excellence in Undergraduate Teaching at Harvard, which recognizes teachers for excellence and sensitivity in teaching undergraduates, and the 2020 Star Family Prize for Excellence in Faculty Advising. She is a faculty associate of the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs and is a member of the Asia Center Council and Steering Committee at the Mittal South Asia Institute at Harvard. She is the editor of Books in Brief for GLQ, Journal of Gay and Lesbian Studies, a member of the editorial board of the journal Science and a contributing editor for Comparative Studies of South Asia, Africa and the Middle East. Her book, Indian Sex Life, Sexuality and the Colonial Origins of Modern Social Thought, which was published by Princeton University Press 2020, demonstrates how ideas of deviant female sexuality became foundational to modern social thought. Her current book project explores the history of third world feminist theory and the South-South solidarity movements. A warm welcome to you ma'am and thank you so much for kindly taking out time for us. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So to start off the conversation, ma'am, you have stated in your previous interviews, as well as in the introduction of your book, Indian Sex Life, Sexuality and the Colonial Origins of Modern Social Thought, that the research project that you had initially intended to work on was a different one with a different set of ideas and arguments. And in the process of which your new research project or your research idea on the category or the concept of prostitutes in colonial India was conceived. If you could tell our audience how such a project was conceived. Absolutely. Um, For all of you who are history students, you know that when you go into an archive, you have to have an idea of what you want to do. So you walk in, you go to the index, or you try to figure out how to read an index. You ask yourself, what is a sanitation file? Or what is a judicial file? And you tell yourself that you're going to ask a particular kind of question. And as historians, all of us go in with a question in mind. You know, And these questions are kind of animated by our own concerns in our lives, right? That, that many of these are p- political or social concerns or questions that have fa- shaped us and the scholarly questions that we ask. And for me, um, so much of my life has been shaped by thinking about the control of women, the control of women's sexuality. Um, elsewhere, I've talked about this in terms of my own family history. And so um, I went into the archives uh, as a first year PhD student, having finished um, my first year, thinking I was going to write a history of the many kinds of women 
who had been engaged in prostitution um, in colonial Eastern India or across colonial India. I wasn't exactly sure, actually. So I went to the archives and in, in, at first I went to first the West Bengal State Archives and I went to the National Library in Kolkata and in Delhi. And I started to find that the category of the prostitute was an elusive one. And as I describe in the introduction of the book, I went into the archives thinking that I would write about the many kinds of people who fell into the problem of prostitution. So whether it was Boishnob women in Bengal or women who were performers and actors, I was trying to understand why, why did everyone end up in this, this problem of prostitution or this profession supposedly of prostitution. But what I found in the archive was that as I followed this category, prostitute, and also a series of other categories that became associated, it's kind of like um, an epistemic domain about the control of women, women's sexuality, a series of categories that became associated with prostitute or prostitution, both in Bengali and in English, I realized that this was a much bigger story that the story that I was telling about its relationship, you know, that the many kinds of women uh, who had fallen into prostitution, that that was me in some ways reflecting the nature of the colonial archive, that the colonial archive was perceiving certain kinds of behaviors, caste practices, low caste status, or Muslim women as prostitutes. And so all of a sudden I needed to tell a different story. Um, or, or that's how I felt over time. And it, for me, I had an unresolved problem, which was the ubiquity of the prostitute. That is to say, across archives, medical, scientific, social scientific, literary, the prostitute was everywhere. And it was almost overwhelming. So it was both everywhere and nowhere. And I had to figure out how to answer that question. And so it took me a long time to answer the question. Um, you know, in my initial research, I was just collecting, collecting, collecting where I would find materials related to this problem of the prostitute or more broadly ideas of feminized sexuality. I was just anything that I would see that, you know, a pamphlet, a chapbook, uh, a little novel, any any reference that I saw in a judicial text, in an abortion text, in a medical textbook, I would pick up. Uh, and over time, as, as I started to put these materials next to one another, I saw that there was a different story to be told. And the story that I wanted to tell from these materials was about the ubiquity of this idea of the prostitute and more broadly, the control of women's sexuality. That is to say that the broader story here for me, or what I found, was that the prostitute could tell us a history of how we studied social life itself how we made social life itself or how the colonial state, but not just the colonial state, but an emerging set of social scientific experts in the late 19th and early 20th century in Bengal made sexuality an object of knowledge, but also how sexuality shaped the very development of society being an object of knowledge itself. So it was a kind of, it's almost like a reorientation. So rather than thinking about the prostitute as something that's studied, the book is trying to reorient us to think about how the prostitute helps us think about the study of society itself. Thank you for that answer, ma'am. Thank you so much. So that's indeed quite interesting. But um, as you say, for a feminine, I mean, the archive is indispensable for any research on colonial India. But for a feminist historian, um, it seems rather difficult to, you know, mine information from the archives, given that often there's 
a relegation of the issues surrounding women, especially those who belong to the more marginalized groups, to the periphery of the statist discourses. So can you elaborate on the problems that you and other feminist historians face in this regard? Uh, so exactly as you said, you know, that the question of how do you mine the information, how you go to the archives and ask these questions, I think that's a primary concern. It's an ethical orientation, I would say, for any feminist historian, but more broadly, I think for, as you know well, for all South Asian historians who have to grapple with the structures of knowledge that have shaped how we tell our pasts. And I think, you know, as you can tell, I have a heavily American accent. So for me, um, as an American, a first gen, well, first generation, um, I found myself in South Asian historiography, just to answer, to think about this in a more reflective way, and feminist historiography, because in these scholarly domains, there was this extraordinarily rich conversation about the problem of method. That is to say, how do you deal with an archive that doesn't tell you of your past? How do you deal with a past that is so politicized in our present that everyone is turning to the archive to tell us whether we have legal legitimacy and citizenship in the contemporary world. So for me, these, these particular fields, feminist studies and South Asian studies, were asking the most cutting edge questions in that domain. And they were calling how we, in some ways, methodologically orient ourselves to archives. So in my training as a feminist scholar and as a scholar of subalternity, that I, you know, I learned about so many traditions about thinking about how we think about archives and how we read archives with it, with the grain, against the grain, right? How many grains we, we move around the grain, right? When we talk about history writing, we, um, and I had, you know, I, I had the opportunity or privilege to build on the long tradition of thinking about sitting in an archive and having to think askew or in some ways what we would say queerly, right? We have to think in a queer way, in an unusual way, um, outside of a normal orientation to imagine those people who are not represented easily in an archive. So, you know, in that sense, my scholarly work builds on the a wide range of feminists. In fact, each chapter of the book kind of is centered on canonical thinkers who have helped shape my orientation to the archive, like Lata Mani, Tanaka Sarkar, Uma Chakravorty, uh, Charu Gupta, Anjali Arundhakar, all of whom who have asked us to think very critically about the question of presence and absence in an archive, right? So, you know, in Lata Mani's work, the question of what is the question question that what called as a result of the questions that are asked in the 1830s in debates about sati, that epistemological question really is this kind of the heart of so much work in South Asian historiography. So I build on that in my scholarly work. Um, my own work thinks about then the approach to how we read archives slightly differently, though. And we can talk about, you know, in the scholarly work on subalternity and feminist scholarship. Um, we hear about the question of archival presence and absence. And my work tries to demonstrate how we might practice these different methods of reading to imagine archival presence differently. In particular, you can think of this in terms of what, what I describe as excess in the introduction of the book, 
which is to say that instead of treating everything like there's a fragment, or that is to say that when we see a fragmentary presence of a woman in an archive, that actually we may think of, if we start to bring archives together, we can see a broader logic at work. That in fact, when we think about the sociological logic of the control of women's sexuality, that it's actually quite pervasive. That the particular presence of women in a document may be uh, fragmentary. But the story that we can tell actually sometimes is in excess. Um, that's kind of the first way to start that question. I will just say really quickly, in terms of feminist approaches, you will see in the footnotes of the book, but also across the work that I do and very much across you, um, other fields, that I am very influenced by other fields, including Black feminist historiography. And from Black feminist historiography, of which I think about the work of people, literary scholar Cedia Hartman, um, historians Marisa Fuentes, uh, Jennifer Morgan, all of whom are scholars of uh, the archives of slavery and enslavement here in um, the U.S. context, they help us think about the reading of documents, but also meditate at the very limit of an archival, of archival presence. So much of Saidia Hartman's work, and, and my work as well, is about asking what happens when you hit the limit, when you find that fragment and there's no other story to be told. Um, and sometimes it's, it's a practice of mourning, of feeling sadness, um, of, of absence, that some of the practice of feminist thinking is actually to feel the archive, not just report on it. Thank you for your answer, ma'am. Uh, so while we are talking about historiography, so a lot of work on prostitutes in colonial India, were mostly focused on their conditions of living or their relationship with the state through through legal institutions or institutions like the colonial army and the like. So in all these works, the category of prostitute is somewhat taken for granted with there not much being an attempt to analyze or to trace the genealogy of the term prostitute or this category. So for our audience, could you please elucidate as to how your work departs from such a historiography and such academic discourses on the prostitutes in colonial India. Thank you so much for this question. Um, your characterization of the historiography is quite right, that the great majority of the historiography, importantly, um, has focused on the institution of the army and state regulatory practices and legal structures related to prostitution. So as I say in the book, the prostitute is the subject of feminist historiography par excellence. That is to say, you can find great books, great histories of prostitution on from South Asia, from Buenos Aires uh, to Shanghai, many books on New York and London and Paris, because she is in some ways one of the most present women in any colonial or 19th and early 20th century archive. In the, in the modern archives of regulation, the prostitute becomes such an important object that in some ways, when women began the work of writing history and really started to take over and try to you know, push for feminist history in the 1980s and 90s, one of the ways they pushed for it was by writing the history of prostitution. So that historiography of prostitution is rich, it's deeply thoughtful, and it, as you say, it focuses on commercial sex and the mil military control. Um, and then, of course, there's work, incredible work by people like Ashwini Tambay, 
who has done excellent work on Bombay, where we learn about prostitution and the constitutive place of prostitution in the making of colonial law, or as we would say, again, reversing that logic, thinking about not just that the law was trying to control prostitution, but that there is a productive work that prostitution does in constituting the domain of law itself. My work builds on those insights of scholarship, but it departs significantly from this historiography. Um, in part, it's because I ask, what if we were to turn away from histories of regulation, from equating this historical category prostitute with the contemporary idea of sex work, and instead think about the prostitute's ubiquity, this idea of it as a concept, as a formative idea that has shaped the very making of knowledge itself. That is to say, part of what I want to do is to think not only about how people studied prostitution or regulated it or controlled it, but think how our very systems of knowledge and how we understand the world today, how we write about the social was constituted through and by the control of feminized sexuality and these concepts of feminized sexuality that are coalesced through the idea of the prostitute. So said differently, how might we think of the modern social sciences, that is to say the study of society as created in and through the concept of the prostitute? Um, in another context, I would, uh, so the question was about this historiography about prostitution. I've extended the, art, uh, the argument of my book in another context to meditate on the histories of thinking about excessive sexuality. And I've done so in an essay um, entitled Surplus Woman, Female Sexuality and the Concept of Endogamy, which came out just last year in the Journal of Asian Studies. And in that article, I think about what it means to turn away from prostitution or the control Um, which subverts and really undermines the social scientific category of endogamy by arguing that endogamy is a political imposition done by upper caste Hindus, by Brahmins, and that there's nothing textual or natural or essential about endogamy to the making of caste, except that it's a form of Brahminical caste enforcement. In doing so, Ambedkar invents a socioeconomic term, surplus woman, to understand how endogamy creates a social economy where women are in surplus of the monogamous household. That is, side, that is to say that they're outside of marriage. So what I argue in the essay is that Ambedkar demonstrates how endogamy is, rather than a social scientific fact about Indian society, is a political imposition a political system that is forced and enforced through systems of violence and caste practice and caste supremacy. That, um, and what I, you know, part of what I try to demonstrate over the course of the essay is that the social sciences in India 
in particular anthropology, sociology, history, have naturalized structures like endogamy and treated them as descriptive truths or demographic facts about Indian society. And I say instead, when we start to un uh, really denaturalize the nature of these categories, we can tell a different story. So in telling denaturalizing the category of the prostitute, we can tell a story that thinks about commercial sex, but also extends beyond it to think about the constitutive place of sexuality in the making of modern social science. When we think about modern social science, all of a sudden we can reorient categories like endogamy and think about them differently to tell a story instead about political, the political imposition of caste supremacy. These are kind of the stories that we can tell when we begin to interrogate the social sciences. That was a long answer. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, ma'am. Thank you so much. That was quite interesting. So often there's this belief that medical discourses that emerge are often divorced from the socio-political contexts that they emerge in. So, but like in your book, you have referred to how the medical discourses of the 19th century were crucial to the creation of the legal category of the prostitute that emerged in the 19th century colonial India. So can you, would you mind elaborating on that a bit? So the question uh, was, how do we think about medical discourses in relation to the creation of this kind of legal category? And I think that I mean, this is a great question. And I think it's something that we can see the long afterlife of this history today, right? So the question was kind of posed as how do we think about medical, the legal, the colonial category in relationship to the medical category. Part of what I try to show over the course of the book is that all of these things are con constituted together, right? So that there is a moment when there's a colonial legal category, in particular, it's the Indian Penal Code, which has the category of the prostitute. And then, of course, it has the contagious, it's the Contagious Diseases Act of 64, 68, um, 1868, that really leave, that create a kind of coalesced formal legal structure for the category of the prostitute. But around this legal structure, there are all of these other forms. There's medical discourse in the formal sense. There's medical legal discourse in forensic medicine. There's also evolutionary science. And in all of these forms or all of these sites, all of these archives, people are inquiring about the control of female sexuality. And so the colonial category in some ways becomes a shorthand for a broader world where people are interested in thinking about the control of feminized sexuality as central to the evolution of Indian society. So if you look at medical texts, which is what I look at a lot in the uh, fourth chapter, which is called evolution, I look at in, in some ways how evolutionary theories are essential to medical ideas about a good society. So evolutionary theories about sexual health, reproduction, about how do you create healthy progeny? How do you produce healthy children? That the theory of the control of feminized sexuality is baked into those evolutionary ideas. And that in fact, when we think about evolutionary theories um, like 
the move from primitive sexuality to modern sexuality, so much of that has to do with the control of women's sexuality. In fact, we can think about the staging of that change from so-called primitive, from things like polygamy to monogamy as actually produced through the increased control of women's sexuality. And that's one way we can think about the, the relationship of a colonial category and its, and its circulation in, the medical, in medical knowledge. Another way we can think of it is, of course, the way that medical knowledge buttresses or is a form of science or a, a form of knowledge that comes to create authority for the colonial state. So, and not just the colonial state, but of course, um, upper caste elites. And we can see that in forensic knowledge, which is what I, I really explore in chapter three of the book, which is called Circularity, which is a, you know, Essentially, what kind of medical evidence is used to determine whether a legal well, a crime has happened or not? So thinking about that structure of knowledge that, you know, that in some ways it, you cannot disaggregate the legal from the scientific, from the sociological, because the legal in South Asia, in the context of colonial India, is always sociological, the sociological is always tied to the medical or the medical sociological imagination. So in some ways, it's saying that these structures of knowledge cannot be disassembled. And part of the assembly of them or their um, or their related interrelatedness is created through the control of feminine sexuality. Um, that was very abstract. Um, an example of this would be, in, so in the book, I look at... Um, many cases of forensic science, of um, cases of abortion, uh, case studies of abortion, where women are accused of abortion, whether dead or alive, and what happens when they're accused of abortion, that there is an attempt to produce medical knowledge about a woman's sexuality that uses the sociological knowledge about things like widowhood or excessive feminized sexuality related to low caste women or Muslims, incorporates it into the medical texts and then uses that to determine the scientific fact of the case. Um, and you find that logic today. We see that all of the time, right? So we see it, it especially in relation to rape cases and contemporary cases of sexual violence in uh, across India. We see this especially in places like UP where a woman, you know, why is it that in some of these very prominent cases, but not just that, that there is an, the police seek to destroy evidence immediately to determine, to basically a sewage or, or, or prevent anyone from knowing that a rape has happened. This happens particularly related to, to violent practices or violent cases of rape and, and murder of Dalit girls and Dalit women, right? That there will be the early cremation of a body so that the forensic evidence can't be collected because the forensic evidence is necessary to determine whether an, uh, the fact of an event has happened. Um, that forensic knowledge uh, related to abortion, not just abortion, infanticide, we, we, if you look at the systems of knowledge today used in India, they're inherited from these colonial systems. And I can talk more at length about that, but that inheritance shows the kind of durability of what this relationship is between the colonial category of prostitute and the control of women's sexuality and the pervasive presence of those ideas that happens across fields of knowledge. 
So, uh, ma'am, you brought up several points. For example, uh, how in UP and especially in India, where you know where cases of rape is brought out, the sexual history of the victim plays an important part. Even while uh, judging the case, the sexual history is taken into account. And even with abortion, your work at length shows that how is it a crime of erasure. So, uh, I would just like to ask you. Uh, where the concerns surrounding the issue of abortion similar in the 19th century social and political discourse in Britain and in India? How were the concerns different from the country and the colony? If you could mm. elaborate on that. Uh, am I on so, Yes, absolutely. Um, so exactly, erasure is exactly the right way to frame this history. And I will just mention very quickly elsewhere, my colleague, Rinal Satish, who is a professor at National Law School in Bangalore, and I have published on, in EPW, we published on the way medical evidence is used to bring prejudicial evidence, uh, prejudicial ideas about women's past sexual history into rape cases. And, and to do that study, we basically demonstrated that things like the finger test, which are, this was from 2014, which are increasingly being regulated and it's technically not supposed, it's, it, it has been issued that you are not supposed to do the finger test, but not just the finger test, but evidence of things like the hymen or a woman's past sexual history are brought in through medical experts, even though um, legally and as judged by the Indian Supreme Court, that you are actually, in fact, not supposed to bring in a woman's past sexual history into legal cases related to rape. Um, with that research, we looked at all high court cases between 1952 and 2011, and the judgments in all of those cases to look at how a woman's past sexual history was used through forensic evidence. And Professor Satish he has an extremely important book on the history of rape adjudication and also on how present day rape and rape sentencing works in India. And of course, there is work of, of amazing scholars like Pratiksha Bakshi, who's worked on contemporary India as well. Um, I, in my book, I focus on abortion. And part of the reason I focus on abortion is because in the chapter prior to the book, the chapter on medical evidence, I demonstrate that there's not only colonial laws on prostitution, like the Contagious Diseases Act, but there are all of these other forms of colonial law that allow the colonial state to enter into everyday life. Probably the most significant among those are laws related to abortion and infanticide that are part of the Indian Penal Code. Those laws, um, in, if in the third chapter, I demonstrate really create incredible penetration, and I don't mean that in a kind of masculinist way, but I kind of do, of the state into everyday practices. So you can see in the third chapter, I describe at length how the dobi is commissioned by the colonial state. The dobiwala is commissioned to, to check whether a woman has menstruated when he's washing clothes. If a woman has not menstruated, that means she was likely pregnant, and sorry, I should say specifically widowed women, women who are outside of marriage, that if they were not to have menstruated, then there is a kind of practice of social surveillance, which gets elevated to the, to the level of state surveillance. So one of the things I found most intriguing in these archives was the way in which a state legal structure or apparatus could come to penetrate everyday life come to be part of everyday life and baked into social systems of surveillance, like 
caste supremacy that were there for decades and generations before, but in fact, in some ways, reallocated the use of caste supremacist structures and caste structures of kind of socio-legal structures and use them on behalf of the colonial state. Um, so the question of the relationship then between how people perceive abortion in India versus perceived abortion in the in places like Britain, in Britain and in there's increasingly a debate that happened that emerges in the 19th and early 20th century about life. When does life begin? When does concept what, what is life at, at conception? And why is abortion considered a sin or considered something that should be legally regulated? In the context of India, you'll find that if you look at there's a long history of women committing abortions, a long history and long structures of knowledge of women sharing knowledge about how to regulate their own reproduction in all kinds of ways, right? So before the invention of birth control, how were women to regulate their reproduction? We know, for example, for the generation of my grandmother, of your grandmothers or great-grandmothers, how many of us come from families where women had 12, 14 children because of the inability in some ways to regulate reproduction, the lack of inability to regulate in reproduction had all kinds of dire consequences for health, obviously for the lifespan of the mother and children, right? So we know, for example, that, you know, like an Annapurshan, a, a, a rice ceremony only happens at a certain age because the likelihood that you would lose a child over the course of pregnancy and birth is very high in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So abortion is in some ways a social fact. That is to say, it is not something that you hear talked about all the time, but there is extensive knowledge among networks of women about how to regulate their own reproduction. And But the, when the colonial state, there is a debate in the 1830s, the Macaulay debates about the penal code, and the passage of the penal code introduces a law that is in fact antithetical to a lot of the sociality around abortion um, in the context of colonial India. So in some ways, the, the law creates an imposition of a social understanding of abortion being a sin on, in, in terms of kind of Christian perceptions of life that are happening in, the, in Britain and imposes it in the context of colonial India. But there's a kind of also another secondary part to that story, which is also that part of why the colonial state is interested in regulating abortion is they see abortion as a way to distinguish racial difference. It's a kind of racial regulatory regime. They see Indian women as prone, prone and this is the language of the colonial state and medical officials, as prone to committing abortions because they are sexually in excess. So the abortion law is also about the regulation of Indian women's sexuality because of the perception of Indian feminized sexuality as always sexually excessive, as racially degenerate. Um, and so there is a racial imaginary and there's also this idea of the, the way that the state can in fact enter into everyday life. And you know there are obviously many dimensions of the penal code, but it is in these laws of regulating very, very, the most intimate aspects of life, like someone washing your clothes and someone checking to see if you've menstruated and someone whispering to another person and another person whispering or sending a letter to the colonial state. 
you know, that all of a sudden the state has a way to enter into everyday life in a way that it never had before. That's indeed quite interesting on how the state attempted to enter the domestic sphere, and which was a larger part of its racial discourses that emerged in the context of the 19th century. So now moving on to the from the colonial discourses to the nationalist discourses. So one of the most important um, category within the nationalist discourses from the late 19th century was that of in Bengal was that of the Bhadra Mohila or that of the chaste woman. So how far did the creation of the colonial category of the prostitute influence the creation of the category of the Bhadra Mohila in the 19th century? So the concept of the prostitute, and by that I mean the colonial category, that is the legal structured category, but also more broadly, the wide range of Bengali terms that are used and over the course of the 19th century equated with the term prostitute um, are essential to determining what is considered bhadro, right? So there's abhadro and there's bhadro. And in some ways, the I think of thinking about deviance as the constitution of that. It's that moment when you create a division between what is considered right and wrong in the context of how we study it as a scholars of, of queer sexuality or feminist sexuality studies, we describe it as the constitution of norms or the creation of normativity. That is to say the creation of social boundaries, unspoken often, that become normalized so much so that they are perceived as natural and necessary. Um, so the colonial category or more broadly this concept prostitute one of the things that I show over the course of the 19th century is that there is quite a lot of translation work um, that happens in the making of these colonial, uh, the making of these categories. So my work does this by thinking about the relationship and translation of categories to the making of knowledge. In Bengali, if you look, or in Bangla, in Urdu, in Hindi, you would find hundreds of words that could be translated either as a prostitute or a whore or, you know, that are derogatory towards women, right? So we don't have just one word, right? There's multiple terms that you would use to call that would be considered derogatory to a woman to, because it's about excessive sexuality or a woman in public or the idea of a woman who's outside of marriage. Um, and in the book, I try to demonstrate that there's actually an intentional coalescing of these terms about women's sexual excess or women's sexuality outside of the home that happens over the course of the 20th century. So if you look at dictionaries from the late 19th and early 20th century, in Bangla to English dictionaries, over time, many of these terms like magi and, of course, Vesha, um, Rar or Randi in Hindi, those terms over the course of the 20th century get easily translated as prostitute. These many circulating ideas coalesce around these this category, and then there are the category. There is the category right? that bhadro, that idea of respectability. Um, for me, I think it's essential because what brings together these wide range of ideas is that these are the things. All of these notions of this idea of the excess of feminized sexuality, whether it's a woman who's called a magi in Bengali or a woman 
who is seen as sexually excessive, all of that is in excess of a Brahminical or upper caste Hindu ideal of marriage. It renames all of those behaviors, whether it is the condemnation of Dalit or low caste women or the condemnation of Muslim women, and it, it calls them prostitute. So the woman who is outside of the household is called a certain is called prostitute, but not just the household, but the upper caste Hindu household. And one of the things that I try to demonstrate in the book is that the prostitute, in fact, is a very interesting category because it obscures the question of caste and communal difference. That is the kind of anti-Muslimness through a language of sexuality. So prostitute, in some ways, um, Re, reconstitute. So it, it's no longer explicitly a language of caste, but it in fact enshrines that language or creates or exalts that language into an authoritative space by calling it prostitute. So the I, idea of the Badr Mohila is then is also created in this moment through that dual logic, that logic that places any woman in excess, any woman who has desire, any woman who dreams in excess or and by dreams i mean dreams of of choosing their own sexual destiny or their their imagination or their own desires beyond chaste reproduction um those women increase the the, the, the domain of what respectability is it becomes increasingly constrained so the padamila is created in this dual logic. And in the book, I suggest that that is in some ways the amazing or rather powerfully flexible form of patriarchy in the context of colonial Eastern India and colonial India more broadly, where ideas of feminized sexuality or ideas of women's liberation and freedom in the late 19th and early 20th century are paradoxically framed as only achievable through patriarchal power in the household. That is to say, freedom can only be found by being bhadro, by staying within the household. So that idea that freedom is framed through the complex ideas of patriarchal respectability, that's incredibly powerful to me. That Brahminical patriarchy creates not to frame liberation and these liberatory imaginations through the paradoxical notion of freedom through the monogamous household. That that paradox to me is like the most interesting thing about, or that's in some ways what gets me every time about the durability of patriarchal, of upper caste patriarchy. Um, because you could condemn so many kinds of people through the category of the prostitute. And so the Badr Mohila can is in some ways the opposite, or, you know, that is to say, she's the, that which is inside of the household. But one of the things that my book demonstrates is the Bodhamohila always has the potential to be the prostitute. So uh, just to continue where you left, so you uh, basically highlight in your uh, book and your research, especially that anyone outside the monogamous heterosexual marriage is a deviant woman who can be a prostitute and uh, this concept of prostitute of uh, all women inherently having uh, the danger possessing the danger to be a to be a prostitute you uh, specifically highlight how this idea was trafficked 
by the colonial state. And this led to the creation of new institution, which ultimately led to the reorganization of patriarchy. And like you mentioned, this was done through various methods. For example, posing social dictates as objective scientific reasoning and collusion with the locals, like the example that you just gave of the Dhobi. So uh, this was done through, a va- through various methods. And uh, what do you think uh, was very much fundamental to this process? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's what's fundamental to the process is in some ways what I describe as a shared epistemic field um, that both the colonial state and Hindu upper caste men in some ways come to a consensus in the 19th century that the way to think about the about women is to think about them through the control of their sexuality and so how do we see so how does the concept prostitute create new institutions well over the course of the book i look at many different kinds of institutions so each chapter of the book is organized through a particular discipline so the first chapter of the book looks at the at indology or the history of philology the study of ancient texts ancient scripts ancient imaginary practices um, and how the ancient has a life in the modern right? Um, The second chapter looks at the legal sociology, which I've spoken about, you know, the relationship between laws against prostitution, laws regulating the trafficking of girls, abortion, and infanticide. The third chapter looks at it through these abortion cases, but over more broadly in the domain of forensic medicine. The fourth chapter, as I mentioned, looks at evolutionary theories, these theories about the move from society, from primitivity to modern society. And then the last chapter looks at literature. Um, So one of the intents with the book is to say, look at how this concept pervades all of these institutional structures. So that kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, right? Which is that when we begin to tell the story of prostitute, the prostitute and more broadly control of women's sexuality, not as a history of commercial sex, that is to say a woman who sold her, her sexual labor for the purpose of gaining some form of independent income, which is an incredibly important part of the story. Uh, but how do we tell this, a broader story about this category and more broadly these, these kind of circulating categories related to this category prostitute and how they became fundamental to structures of knowledge? So we can see that they're essential to the constitution of all of these forms. In the, in the first chapter, and I think that in some ways this is in, in some ways the most important chapter, which is on philology or the indological study of feminized sexuality, one of the things I demonstrate again and again is that the use of ancient texts to justify present day modern patriarchy. And we see this often, this is particularly through the laws of Manu, right? That that upper caste Hindu monogamy is justified through textual traditions that come from a very long time ago. And the reason I say it's one of the most important chapters in the book is then that philological logic or that logic that that logic that looks to the ancient to tell us about our present happens again and again over the course of the book. So in the first chapter, I look at how there is a fascination with Indian neurotics that comes from 
you know, Orientalists uh, in the 19th century, but also among Hindu men who begin to write theories by rereading Manu in order to create new upper caste kind of Hindu supremacist visions of modern society. Um, and, you know, there's a range of these Bengali men who I talk about in the book who create sociological studies by use, by studying all of these ancient texts. So they look to the Kama Sutra or the laws of Manu to justify deeply patriarchal understandings of the control of women's sexuality in the present. But if you look through the chapter, you begin to see that, in fact, arguments about Kulin Brahmanism that appear in the fifth chapter um, that about whether Kulin Brahmanism, that is to say a certain subsect of Kulin, uh, the Kulin line uh, within Brahmins in Bengal can practice polygamy. And again, they turn to the ancient text to ask a question about the present. And of course, we see this logic all of the time in contemporary India. Um, but what I've tried to argue is in some ways that women's sexuality is actually essential to that project of using, using ancient text to make an argument about modern Hindu society. That the control of women's sexuality, upper caste, Hindu supremacist control of feminized sexual of women's sexuality is actually essential to creating a logic that looks to the to Manu again and again and again to justify supremacist visions for the present and the future. So, I mean, there's lot, many ways we could tell the story, but again, in, in the circularity chapter in these medical textbooks, it is amazing how much they look to Manu in a medical text, in a supposedly purely scientific text, to tell a story about the nature of Indian women. And part of what I argue at the end of the book, in the afterword of the book, uh, when I do a reading of Rokeya Sukhawat Hussain's, um, uh, Rokeya Sukhawat Hussain, uh, Sultana's Dream, sorry, that part of what I demonstrate is that one book is considered fiction, but all of these others, in all of their... is basically a complete outcast, dirty, terrible woman, that all of these kind of inventions of patriarchy are treated as scientific fact. Whereas the invention and creative fiction of someone like Rukia Sakawat Hussein is treated like fiction. And part of what I ask is why does one form of invent like of invention called patriarchy, get to claim the domain of science and get to claim the mantle of authority that comes with ca calling it social science. Whereas the fictional writing or the imaginary, the uh, kind of the social imaginary that comes from a range of women's writing in the early 20th century is treating, treated as just the domain of literature. Um, and that juxtaposition for me, you know, at the end of the book, the last line of the book is uh, in some ways the rasa of the book as I say, which is to say that the there is an orientation in the book overall. The intent of the book is to make you feel disoriented, that all of a sudden, all these things that we treat as social science, what if we called it fiction? What, what is the story then that we would tell? Um, and I think that that kind of gets at your question. I don't know if I answered that question very well. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Uh, thank you so much for your answer. And like you said that the purpose of the book is to constantly question and disorient ourselves. So regarding that, you have used uh, autobiographies and testimonials of prostitutes and you have used them in a different way because you haven't used them in a way that narrates history of 
uh, their resistance or recuperation of their agency. But your uh, approach differs from these approaches. And if you could tell our audience, why have you considered approaching in a different manner? And what kind of conclusions did that lead you to? Hmm. So in the last chapter, Veracity, I begin the chapter by talking about how the question of who was a prostitute really informed so many of it's it's an object of fascination for the public from the middle of the 19th century that everyone is interested why does a woman become a prostitute and people ask this question again and again they ask it in social surveys they ask it in public health surveys they ask it in the public newspapers it's kind of like an obsession of the public in this moment and so in the last chapter I turned to literature, Bengali literature, not because I do a survey of all of the forms of Bengali literature or the Bangla literature that exist out, exists out there that talks about prostitution or prostitutes, because there's too much and I don't have the space to talk about it in the book, but also because my book is only about social scientific inquiry or those things that get to claim fact, I made it very narrow. So I look at a genre of texts that claim to be sociological. And then I look at these autobiographies, the so-called autobiography of the Indian prostitute. It's a confessional form, right? It is a form that emerges in the late 18th, 19th century in the 1870s and 80s. And it becomes incredibly popular through the 1930s, 40s and 50s and beyond. And the idea of the confessional form is about the first person. What is the truth that you can tell from your own perspective? Um, and so, over the course of the chapter, I look at that confessional form and I start to demonstrate that when you begin to look at, at, at these texts as a genre, you see, you start to see patterns or tropes, similarities, that the stories that are told, often the author is anonymous or the author is named in a way that she's not identifiable, right? It's a person who is given a broad name, um, that those autobiographical accounts tell a story about the rise and fall of a woman, right? That at first she was chased. She was just a young girl, 16 year old, you know, by the banks of the river and she was approached by a man. And so then it tells the same story. Many of these stories tell the same story again and again, a woman. And often the, 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 the turning point in these stories is, is sometimes sexual violence, right? A woman is raped or experiences some form of violence or more often in, in the telling of the fictional versions of the stories, or the women um, cannot hold their lust in and then, you know, fall for their tutors or go and run off with, a, you know, a local man. In these stories, in some ways, they're kind of cautionary tales, right? What happens when your, when your daughter runs away? What happens if you do not adequately control women's sexuality? And so we can think of them as pedagogical texts rather than just confessional. So over the course of the readings of these texts, I try to demonstrate that, well, first of all, the authorship of these texts is often in question. We know that for a text like Manoda Devi, right, that it's actually a text, and we learned this from Partha Chatterjee and others, that has been used, in fact, to critique society or was used to critique the Congress Party in the 1920s and 30s, that was very likely written by a man, that it follows kind of patriarchal tropes about women's sexuality. So I think the real question is then, why are we all compelled by the memoir or confessional form? What is it that the first person tells us that's different than, 
you know, you can read a big sociological study with a chart and a graph, but what is it about the testimonial that moves us, right? It's a, it has a different effect on us. And part of what I try to argue is that, you know, as a historian, we have to have a distance from the effect of the text on us. That the testimonial, when taken just as fact, as another historical artifact, as another historical archive, and not treated with the same skepticism that we treat all of these other, right? When we read a colonial text, we think of, we read it against a grain. We think about the categories that are being used. We ask what kind of tropes, what kind of stereotypes are being used. We should be using the same methodological tools that we have as historians to do the same to these texts. And part of what I find is that feminist historians, scholars, we want there to be a woman who writes in the 1910s and 20s, right? We seek that test, like in a world where no one, no women appear in archives, in a world where women are increased, are over and over, over again erased from historical records, it is refreshing and exciting to imagine that we get an autobiography of a woman who, a so-called prostitute. But I think that we as scholars have to separate our desires from how we read such a text. And part of it is also, what do we desire? You know, what does that society in the moment that the book is published desire from such a text? And what do we desire now from that text? And when we separate what we desire, we begin to see that, in fact, the story that is being told is not different than any of the other sociological, evolutionary, theoretical studies that we saw before, that women are set in sexual excess, that the only way that a woman can be redeemed is by dying, right? That, that, that is the story that is told again and again and again in some of these autobiographies, in these autobiographies, right? That either a woman goes to Benares and she becomes totally chaste at the end of her life and therefore, you know, essentially takes up the asceticism of a widow or she dies. She dies as a result of disease. She dies as a result of herself. And those are the, that's the fate. That's the fate that's available. Um, and part of what I want to ask is, you know, why do we imagine that the only way women can live, that first of all, a woman having sexual choice is excess, that women's liberation can only be had within the household, that when a woman is sexually in excess of conjugal marriage. It is considered a fall. It's considered degraded. And why is it that we can only imagine redemption for women through their death? And you'll find that in B.R. Ambedkar's essay, again, to go to refer back to that essay that I wrote on surplus women, that in Ambedkar's essay, he says the same, right? That Hindu society, because of the, the upper caste imposition of endogamy, again and again, imagines that the best kind a woman is a dead woman. And he's just that explicit. And I'm saying it this explicitly here, because in some ways we have to ask ourselves, why is it that we are so comfortable with the possibility of women dying, whether by domestic violence, whether by widow, I mean, in this case, in, in, uh, in Ambedkar's essay, but also in the 19th and early 20th century by Sati, there is a kind of ease with which we have or a kind of lightness to how we imagine the value of women's lives. So that's kind of how I an an answer that question. It's not to say that we don't want, we shouldn't value autobiographies, but that by bringing skepticism, we can ask a set of different questions about the tropes, the stereotypes, but also 
the stories that are being told and the kind of vision of women that they offer us. Thank you so much, ma'am. That was, that is quite interesting way of looking at the autobiographies. Now, moving on to something different and to the last question of the day. <clears throat> so in the September 2021 edition of Science, you, along with your other co-editors, have attempted to look into the multifaceted nature of rage and the various ways in which it has been channelized. Now, since your recent work is exploring third world feminisms and the South-South solidarity movements, how far do you think that feminist rage against patriarchy in general and the patriarchal state in particular can be an important means of achieving solidarity for the women's movements in South Asia, which have been divided internally by the divisions of caste, class, religion, etc.? Thank you so much for this question. So in the in this issue of signs, the theme was rage. It was a very interesting issue to edit because we put out a call for papers asking anyone who's interested in writing on the problem of rage, feminist rage, um, please send us a paper. And we got hundreds, we got many responses. And the idea of rage, you know, people differently approached it. Some people critiqued the problem of rage. Some people said that feminist rage is, you know, that's the fire that burns in you that allows you to fight for women's access or access more broadly for LGBTQ people to rights. Um, in my introduction of the, of the issue, I talk about rage not as, I say essentially that we need to think about rage more broadly, that rage is a kind of response. And we might think of it as outrage rather than just rage. And when we tell us a story about outrage, feminist outrage, um, we need to think about other practices, particularly practices of care that are part of feminist movements or part of feminist solidarity that is part of the project of rage. And in the, in the introduction of the issue, I talk about Shaheen Bagh in particular to tell that story, right? That if we look, and I'm using, you know, and thinking about with many accounts of Shaheen Bagh that happened right before it is, you know, abruptly, violently ended in March of 2020, that from the example of Shaheen Bagh, we can see that rage or outrage at Citizenship Amendment Act, that at the extraordinary violence that has been inflicted on Muslim women and Muslim communities again and again and again in Delhi, that that outrage looked not like violence, right? It's not pitchforks in the street. It was women sitting together. It was people sitting together. It was poetry readings. It was a public library, you know, a makeshift library of books. It was posters on a wall, uh, graffiti on a wall. It was food, right? And we can see this again in farmers' protest, right? That the protest is a kind of rage, but the practice of rage is actually much broader than we imagine, right? It's not fighting and screaming in the street, but the feminist orientation to rage is also about caregiving and also about food and, and singing, right? And chanting. Um, and I use that example in part to say that the things that move us or th that are part of our public movements today 
are not in, you know, that there may be an initial emotive response that creates the possibility of a political movement. But sustaining a political movement requires practices of care that go far beyond the, the just the, the question of rage itself. Now, that gets at the question of how do we think about solidarity, which I think is a brilliant question about solidarity across caste, communal lines, gender lines. And I think that that's a very difficult question in our contemporary moment. And you, you mentioned, you know, I've been studying essentially, I'm looking at the rise of feminist research in the 1970s and 80s in India, in Pakistan, in places of Africa, because there's these huge feminist networks that emerge in this period between many different places in the third world. And one of the things that I found is, for example, and this is not surprising to anyone who studied Indian feminism, that there is the what we would call the obfuscation or, or obscuring of issues related to caste or separatist movements or border issues that happens in the 1970s and 80s under the claim of solidarity, right? So the best example, or one example of this could be found in something like the Status of Women Report, right, of 1975, where under the claim of thinking about the problem of equality, the authors do not name caste as a political problem, really. They name it as a demographic issue, right? And this is what we see again and again. And I mentioned this about prostitute, that prostitute category actually obscures pro political questions of caste and, and anti-Muslimness that are part of the political moment in the 1920s and 30s in Bengal. We see the same thing again and again in the late 20th century, that categories like women can in fact obscure all of these other intersectional issues related to caste supremacy, Hindutva um, in our contemporary moment. And so I think for me, the question of solidarity has to be through practice, right? That thinking about a women's movement in our contemporary world is simply insufficient. Because to claim women as a universal again and again, first of all, it's a failure for all sorts of reasons, as it was in the 1970s. Um, and it's a failure because to treat something as universal is to obscure the social and political and economic differences that create the possibility of solidarity in the first place. Solidarity is made through mutual care. Right? It is made through an ethics of orientation towards another that sees another person as a human. And again and again, we find in these political movements that in trying to make an argument for universal categories, political categories, that the obscuring of the practice of care happens again and again. And that this is what I see. So in Shaheen Bagh, you know, like what is happening in the space of Shaheen Bagh that I find that's what I, I just used it as an example. And again, we can see this in farmers protest in complicated ways. Who is feeding who is supplying, you know, who is taking video, who is putting it on YouTube? What is the conversation? You know, that those practices shape what solidarity can be and look like in our world today. I will say solidarity is not just tweeting about something or putting something on Facebook or sending WhatsApp forward, right? Because that is simply not enough. And in our, in the contemporary moment, that means that an upper caste Hindu feminist, including myself, who comes from that tradition, you know, that part of the practice of care is knowledge, right? So the difficulty is, it's, you know, the 
it is not our job to co-opt other feminist imaginaries or other imaginaries of how to argue for women's rights or Dalit womanism, that the problem so often has been that claims of authority are used on behalf of a kind of conception of universal possibility. And I don't think our contemporary movements will allow it. The other thing I would say in our, just, it's not, it's not fully imagined or articulated yet, but that we live in a time of such alarming authoritarianism. It's just incredible everyday violence. Whether we're talking about the rape and murder of women and trans people or or third gender communities, or we are talking about the lynching of Muslims. And we have to do the work of rethinking solidarity, I think very seriously. And you, your generation is the one that's doing that work. It's, you know, I think that in some ways my generation failed or did not successfully think about how do we center Hindu caste supremacy as the problem of patriarchy, right? That Hindu caste supremacy is not one of the many forms of patriarchy, but it may be, in fact, the central problem of patriarchal violence when we think about it in the context of India. How do we then use that lens to critique the very structure that makes the police in India, the very structure that organizes border legal policies in India, How do we understand that that structure as determining funding and economic policy and shaping development policy for the last 30 years, right? So it is a lens of thinking, but as I said, it's also a form of mutual care, which is premised on recognizing the human. And that's actually far harder than we might imagine, right? That what we see again and again in these public displays of violence is the massive dehumanization of other kinds of people, so part of what I think our radical work has to be is to imagine what, does, what is the project of imagine the human again in the face of these practices of dehumanization. That is the project of solidarity, I think, now. But that's insufficient to answer such a question that I think is incredibly urgent and important for today. Thank you so much, ma'am. And it's such a wonderful way to end today's uh, conversation. Uh, on behalf of History Society, I would like to thank you so much for agreeing to do this and having a conversation with us. This episode of Rewind was hosted by Anushka Roy and Debanjan Das from Third Year History, St. Stephen's College. The cover art for this episode was designed by Lamboy King Kongsai from Second Year History of St. Stephen's College. The introductory and the closing audio is credited to Anu Migom from Second Year Philosophy of St. Stephen's College. Thank you everyone for joining in. We'll be back with a new episode soon.